0: Welcome to the third Sheer on the Sefer Choy Vas the Book of the Duties of the Heart. Today's Sheer, we're going to present the fourth, fifth, and sixth chapters, or gates, which are about bitochin, trust in God, Yichur HaMaisa, dedicating all your actions to one Purpose and Kneiya, humility, respectively. Those are the three gates that we're going to study today. So the Chavos begins his famous and much learned, probably learned more than any of the other portions of this book, Shair Habitochin, his gate of B'tukhin, of trust and dependency on God. Now, as we've discussed. Chavaz Lavavis develops his book sequentially. Things follow based on what preceded. And that's how he begins each shah, showing you how it connects to what we studied until now. So let's just review. We've seen, of course, the introduction, which talks about the obligations to have a mindful worship of God. We've seen Yichud, Shaha Yichud, gate of unity about God's unity, followed by Sha'a khina which is the examination of the world through which we can understand God's actions to us. And therefore, following from that Shah is Hashem, the gate of worship of God, which follows from what God does to us, is that we have to worship him. And there was developed, so, so far we've developed what God is, what he does to us and what we have to do to him. That's basically in a nutshell, what has been developed so far. Following that comes and trust. Why? Because, says the al after accepting the duty to worship God, follows the thing that is the most severe, the most important for the one who is worshiping God, which is trusting him completely. So this follows upon worship and the al Levavus begins by saying that the state of mind, which of course is going to explore and explain how to reach it, etc., what it's all about, involves great benefit. Why is it so beneficial to have this state of trustingness? So he goes through the benefits. He says a person who trusts God is going to be tranquil, he's going to be in a state of tranquility, of a tranquil mind. While someone who trusts other than God, will lose divine providence so here he asserts that trust in god is what makes a person earn his providence while if you trust in something other than god instead of there being providential care for you from god you will instead be left in the hands of whatever it is that you trust him trust in if you trust in yourself then god will leave you to be controlled by your own power and when you when you run out of energy and you're not able to do something you will, in fact, not be able to get what you need. If you trust in your wealth, well, you will lose your wealth. Another benefit of trusting God is that that way, you won't, be, you, you won't subjugate yourself to people and you'll have a clear mind and the ability to dedicate yourself what's important serving Hashem and you won't care about what people think additionally it will take your mind off of this world and may focus you on the next world because you're basically not dependent you recognize your dependence not on this world but on God and then he does a very interesting thing Chavos gives 10 benefits 10 advantages that uh, someone who trusts in a Baruch has over an alchemist. An alchemist someone who can supposedly make gold out of baser base metals. And it's a very interesting passage where he says, okay, why is it better to be to have trust in God than to be an alchemist? Basically, if you could make money out of nothing. And he shows that even then, there are advantages. And of course, this basically points to the idea that ultimately, God is the basic source of everything. And therefore, anything as, as secure as it might seem, below God is not going to get you there. For example, he says, the alchemist requires some means to develop his riches, while dependence on God is the real source of all means. The alchemist has to engage in his craft, which is dangerous, involves chemicals, uh, involves the risks to his health, He's afraid of being caught, etc, etc, things like that. Okay, additionally, trusting in God makes a person fulfill his religious duties because then he'll be able to use his money for mitzvahs, for the gifts to Hashem. His wealth won't cause him to forget about Hashem, and if he loses it, he will still thank Hashem. In this world, just of this life, is the benefit of being trusting Hashem, which is that a person is tranquil and not worried about the worries of the world. He has a menucha, and he's always calm. Additionally, he doesn't exert himself in kinds of journeys that can, in order to become wealthy, which are dangerous because he recognizes that the source of all his wealth and success comes from Hashem. He won't, he won't engage in kind of work, which is dangerous. What kind of work will he engage in that which is the most pleasant and honorable and easy and enables him to fulfill his religious duties. If something evil befalls him, an illness or the like, he doesn't concern him, it doesn't bother him because he knows that God is choosing for him and God knows best. So he's always happy, even if something happens, that's against his nature. Okay, that is the introduction to Shai Patochen. And now, as he always does, he tells us the ten things he's going to discuss, which are the ten, I'm sorry, the seven things he's going to discuss, which are the seven chapters of this shai And those are what Patochen is, what does it mean to trust God? second what are the causes for that trust state of trust thirdly what are the necessary introductions from which follow trusting god and goes into the idea of even though we trust god we still have to deal with intermediaries sibis still we can't just do nothing and trust god and do nothing and he explains that the fourth one is what matters have talking in the, involving them the fifth one is the difference between someone who has betachen and now he will engage in these intermediary causes while someone who does not the sixth one is uh, about people that say hey they'll serve god after god gives them what they need and then they'll be able to turn towards god but they're waiting to get something from god before they can serve him and the seventh one is what causes a person to lose betachen. okay so chapter one what is bitachin? so this is key he says betachen is a state of mind where the soul of the person has trust is calm and relies on the person he's trusting in. What is he relying on him? That he will do the best thing and the most appropriate thing for him because the one that you're trusting him knows and is capable to deliver what is appropriate for you. And the the basis for this state of trust is that the one who's doing the trusting is certain that the one who he's trusting in will do what he said that he'll do and will even do what he hasn't said through kindness and graciousness. So basically it's important to think about this, that the essence of trust in this short little chapter where he just tells us what it's all about is certainty that there's someone, of course it's going to bring it to God, but now he's defining what Bittachin is in its essence, that state of mind of trustworthiness is being certain, being confident that there is someone, something, that's going to fulfill his promise to you. So the are predicated on some sort of contract and some sort of promise and between God and his creatures eventually, we'll get to that. And, um, and that you're certain that he will number one, fulfill that. And number two, that there's even more than, you know, so that's a key point in this idea of trust to know that not only will God do what he said, but there's even more, um, graciousness and, and kindness than has been vouched and promised. Chapter two, what are the causes for trust? So he says there are seven of them. Firstly, the thing that you're trusting in has to be merciful. Secondly, you have to know that the thing that loves or has mercy for you will not abandon you. Thirdly, the thing that you're trusting in has to be capable can't be something that can be overpowered. Fourthly, the thing that you're trusting should know what's beneficial for you. Fifthly, the thing that you're trusting in is the sole control of the one who's doing the trusting from his beginning throughout his whole life. Sixthly, no one else can harm this person who's doing the trusting. Seventhly, the one who's being trusted is completely good and completely kind. And then he shows. So, if you have all these conditions, then you have something to trust in. And then he shows that all these seven conditions do not apply to anything but for God. First, he brings verses psukim for each of them. The fact that God is merciful it brings many psukim for that. The fact that God knows everything and that He controls everything of a person's life, and that God is completely kind, etc., etc. So, all these are psukim. And then he says, besides with these being psukim. It's also logical that all these things apply to god and when you know this about god and you think about this then you trust you'll trust god completely and depend on him completely and not judge him don't think that he's misjudging you and don't be angry third chapter now he goes into these seven matters and he reviews them here he shows not just from circum that god has all these seven things but also from logic so he says there are five conditions for to have trust. One is to have all these seven things mentioned in the last chapter, and he goes to them again, and he says some interesting points. For example, he says, God is a source of mercy. He mentioned that God is the most merciful, and he says, God is a source of mercy. Any mercy that a person has is rooted in this, in this characteristic of God's mercy. As the passage says, God gives you mercy, so God has mercy, and he shares that with us. God knows, certainly knows what's good for his creatures, for his creations, because he created them. God does such kindness to us as we learn through the gate of examination. And everything that happens happens to God's decree. And here's a key point, because here's something that he gets back to a few times. There are not immediate causes. We can explain how something happens based on nature. So he says, yes, everything has causes, but ultimately everything traces back to God's decree. And we see the most immediate cause or the, the proximate cause, and we think that's actually what's causing something, while the proximate cause is in fact too weak, too insignificant to cause the result. And he gives some examples of that. He says, in nature, you can see you can plant one kernel of wheat, and from that grows 300 stalks, and each stalk has about 30 kernels. So that's not something we can at least grasp intuitively by just looking at the proximate cause, we have to realize that there's always something preceding that, there's something deeper than the proximate cause. And therefore, we have to understand that ultimately everything's rooted back in God's decree, in God's will. Therefore the only thing we should think about is that. Is God's will. <clears throat> God looks at everything and doesn't miss anything and knows what a person's thinking. Therefore A person should not just pay lip service to trust in God, but he has to actually trust in him in his mind. A person should trust solely in God and not include anything else in this trust. This idea of shitov, of of trusting God along with something else, is incomplete trust. The fourth thing necessary for someone to have trust in God is for him to do his obligations towards God. Keep the turret, keep the mitzvahs, just as you wish Hashem, whom you trust, to do your desire. Someone who will trust in God, but at the same time is rebelling against Him, is being foolish, by analogy of someone who trusts a person to do good to Him, but if He doesn't do what that person wants, He cannot expect Him to deliver. This is, of course, based on the idea developed earlier in the book that our relationship to God is, is a relationship similar to the relationship of receiving from a person and that causes us to have a certain kind of uh, obligation towards god reciprocal relationship and reciprocal obligation where we serve him and he in turn takes care of us and then he goes into the idea of causes so everything happens through intermediate causes for example if there's food but we don't actually go ahead and put it into our mouths we won't survive so god didn't create a world where his will is put into effect immediately without any chain of causes. Why is that the case? Why are there causes? If everything traces back to God's will, why are these all intermediate causes? So he says the following. He says there's two reasons, it's a very interesting theory. The soul is being tested in this world, will it obey God or not? And how is it tested? By seeing how it's involved in this world. So the intermediate causes are basically what man has to do what what his action involves in this world and that serves as a test for his soul it serves as the means for a person to earn reward or punishment secondly the reason why it's necessary for for there to be intermediate causes and that a person has to work in order to support himself because if not a person would quickly forget about Hashem it's important that the person should have something to be involved in. This way, the person is involved in this world and the next, he's involved in taking care of himself in this world, he's involved in taking care of himself in the next world, and he's not looking for something that he can't understand, meaning because if he would have nothing to do, he'd be involved in no good. So therefore, it says the also follows in this is, if a person in fact accepts Hashem's worship, depends on him, and fulfills the religious duties, and his being at rest from work doesn't make him reject Hashem then there's no need anymore for him to be engaged in these intermediate causes and in fact he won't have to. So his pandas will come without difficulty, without working hard. So basically if you have a theory of why God makes us work, Rabbi Zababa says then based on his theory you can get to the point where it's no longer necessary and in fact you'll be freed from the burden everything will happen very easily. Okay, well is that really the case though? aren't there many tzaddikim who have to work very hard and they don't have this this idea that oh well they're free from work because they prove themselves at the same time there are many Rishayim who seem to get this blessing of not having to work hard so he says look this is an old question which is going to and they sometimes ask the question why is it that tzaddikim suffer they don't even give the answers they say the hidden things are Hashem's and we can't really know the answers however he's going to say he's going to say some of the answers it could be that this tzaddik who is still suffering and still has to work hard it's because he once sinned or it could be he's going to be repaid in the next world or it could be that he's being tested due to the sins of the people the tzaddik is being tested so that he'll be his tzaddik will be demonstrated to the people who will then be able to learn from him why does Hashem do good to russia could be he once did something good could be that he's being uh, is, Hashem is giving him a chance to do tshuva it could be, it's because of his parents did some chesed. Okay now so we discussed this idea that there is this there are intermediate causes that's a fact we can't just trust our god and not do anything at work so what should a person choose how should a person based on the need of trusting god how should a person choose what he should work in what should be the causes that he chooses so he says well some of them are difficult some of them are easy and just like animals each have a certain proclivity to a certain kind of activity similarly in humans people have certain natures and certain inclinations and a person should follow his nature and do that which comes easily to him but there's a point there what if it doesn't work out what if things aren't working out so you have to trust hashem and don't don't be upset if it doesn't work out you have to understand this is your nature this is your calling and you have to realize that that's ultimately rooted in god and god is the one who decides whether it's going to work out for you or not this work this engagement in the and the intermediary causes is itself a mitzvah and even if it doesn't succeed if a person works and doesn't succeed he's doing a mitzvah what is the mitzvah like the passage says that the man was put into the to work the land so working is a mitzvah building is a mitzvah, getting married is a mitzvah. And then if a person succeeds, great. Even if he doesn't succeed, do everything for the sake of heaven and the act of trying with the right intention itself is a mitzvah and earns a person reward. In chapter four, the Chavis L'Bavos goes into all the categories that involve trusting Hashem. And he divides them as he usually does, he divides them into all categories and subcategories and ultimately there are seven of them. Things that relate to the person's body specifically, things that relate to a person's income, his family, his duties, duties of the heart, duties of the limb, the reward in the next world that is according to a person's actions in this world, and the world in the next world that is kindness from Aqadish baruch Remember the idea of trust in Hashem is trusting in his further kindness above and beyond what he promised. And that, that's what he was getting to here, this an idea of reward in the next world that is unearned, which is a very interesting, fascinating idea. I'm not aware of another source for this. We'll get to that soon. And then he goes into all of these categories, and he explains in each one how a person would have trust in Hashem. So we'll go through that briefly, some of them. For example, something relating to the person's body, a person's life, a person's death his food, his dwelling, his health. What does it mean to trust in God for this? So to understand that everything is coming by God's decree and to know that anything that happens to you was preceded by God's knowledge that this is what's appropriate for the person. Of course, back to that point, a person has to engage in these intermediate causes. But you shouldn't say, well, if God wants me to live, I won't eat. I don't need to eat. I don't have to do anything. So that's not true. He says you can't test God. And if a person endangers his life, if he in fact causes his death, that's that's a sin. It's a greater sin than killing someone else because the closer that you are to the person that you killed, the worse the sin is, certainly if you kill yourself. And if a person saved miraculously, that removes from his merits. So rather, it's apparently, apparently, we are obligated to engage in these intermediate causes, and, but ultimately with understanding that God is at the root of them. So basically, trusting God is an approach to know that everything is coming from God's will. Well, it's an approach and orientation of realizing that everything we do, and of course we do engage in these very complicated intermediate causes, are rooted in God's knowledge, and they're coming from his will. They themselves are coming from his will. Okay. Um he goes into this in each thing. Again, let's say it comes to work. What should a person choose to work? So pick what God gave you, meaning whatever inclinations he put into you, that's God's will, and that's what you should be doing, and understanding coming back from God. What if a person gets rich? So he talks about that specifically. He says, Well, sometimes a person has a lot of wealth and he in fact supports other people. What does it mean to understand that that's coming from God? He says, What it means is to realize that it's not for you. You have a role to play. You have a role to play in being the source of a lot of people's income, running a big business and that's really coming from God and it's your job is to allocate it. So it's really an orientation, it's an understanding that everything you have fits into God's purpose and it's not about yourself. If a person's work is not succeeding, you should understand that that's also coming from God and you should understand that God chose everything for him and he's choosing this too. What about a person's family? when it comes to family. So he says, well, if a person is a loner, he should see the good in that. And he starts saying why it might be good to be alone and not to be distracted. If you have a family, see the good in that. And what's the point of this? What does it have to do with trusting God? Is because the whole idea is recognizing everything comes from God. So seeing the good in something is part of trust, because it's understanding God's plan for you. Now, when it comes to trusting Hashem regarding our duties to Him, so he says well those things which are our obligations can't trust the shem about those because those are something that he gave to us and that's where free will comes in we were we are commanded to make these choices now we are obligated to make the good choices whether they can work for us or not we can't wait for the circumstances to be in place we can't say well god will give me the right circumstance and i'll make the right choice our job is our obligations to make the right choices regarding the mitzvahs and then hopefully have the opportunities to put them into effect and he says a very interesting way to look at the difference between mitzvahs and on everything else everything else in the world where the torah doesn't tell us explicitly what to do it doesn't tell us what cause what intermediate cause is the right one to use we don't know which work we should go into or how we should keep ourselves healthy. So therefore, we have to say, well, it goes back to God. While becomes to the things that the Torah delineates us, tells us exactly what to do, Torah, in those cases, gave it to us, gave that information to us of what is correct and what is right. So therefore, that's not something that we say, well, let's give it back to God and let's rely on Him. That's something that He's actually, as it were, relying on us. Now, he gets to a very interesting thing. Trusting God regarding payment in the next world. Okay, so now he goes into reward, in general. And he says there's two kinds of reward for mitzvahs, in this world and the next world. Now, the reward in the next world, which actions earn which reward, the Torah doesn't tell us specifically. In general, the nation gets rewarded um, for for doing good, but it doesn't tell us specifically how. The reward of punishment in the next world is not delineated in the Torah at all. Why? So he gives many reasons, which other thinkers bring up, take up too, but he brings many reasons why the reward of the next world is not mentioned in the Torah. So he says like this, number one, the soul, the nature of the soul is unknown to us. Certainly, we can't understand the pleasure or pain. When the soul is no longer connected to the body. So therefore the Torah can't explain it. Secondly, the idea that there's reward and punishment in the next world is something we have by tradition from the prophets, and the wise men know it through their logic. So therefore, it doesn't want religion is safer in the book because it relies on this tradition. Secondly, the nation, when it got the Torah, was at a level where it wasn't able to understand these kinds of sophisticated. Ideas, and therefore, <clears throat> just like when a person is raising a child, you fir- you first tell him, you first give him some incentives to do the good, which are on his level. You're not going to encourage a child to do the good with philosophy by teaching him about the the, the worth of doing the good. Similarly, when it came to the nation that was in its original stages of development, God. Incentivize us with immediate reward and punishment, and eventually, knowing that eventually we'll understand about the world to come. And then, here he throws in here, incidentally, he adds that the similar when it comes to corporal reality of Kadash Baruch Hudapsukh, and I talk about Hakash Baruch having a goof, and eventually the nation had to come and understand that that's not the case, and it's only parabolic, it's meant as a parable, Well, it's not literal, but the nation at that level had to hear something very simple. That they were able to understand and eventually um, surpassed. This idea, by the way, that the same way you uh, educate a child and you start off with the baser kind of desires and you eventually reach and educate him and make him do things for the better reasons. This is idea picked up in the Rambam's introduction to Chaylik, where he talks about the, the, the world to come and how that's the ultimate reward. While doing things Shaladeshma is is equivalent to a child who's taught to do things for all the wrong reasons till he's ready to understand the right reasons to do things. Similarly, sorry, furthermore, says the says, says, another reason why Allah Mabbas not mentioned the world to come is I mentioned it because, and this is a fascinating point, the reward in the world to come is not earned only by a person doing good actions. Now, two more things necessary. This is also not something that I recognize from anywhere else. One of them is that you have to, this person, to earn the world to come, you have to also enable other people. To serve Hashem. And it brings... You have to be from the... harabim, From someone who makes the... Public into tzaddikim... In order to be like a star... And be eternal. So you have to get... Other people to serve Hashem. And that's when you deserve... Uh, the world to come. Secondly... Another thing that's necessary... To earn the world to come... Is Hashem's... Kindness. And that's because... Even if a person does... Everything possible... An, a great number of good deeds... That's not suffice to repay God for any goodness that He does to us in this world. And if, a, if God would insist on doing everything exactly, paying us exactly what we deserve, then, then um, the smallest kindness that God did to us would, would suffice for all the good that we've done. While the converse holds true for punishment, punishment is absolutely deserved. And therefore, the world to come requires God's kindness. So it's not something that's built it's not something that's earned it's something that requires special conditions and then he says another idea that the world to come which is a hidden world is the reward for hidden actions the duties of the heart very very important idea the duties of the heart are what earns a person the world to come because those are the hidden duties the revealed duties which are very known to people that gets revealed reward in this world while the inner kind of service gets a hidden reward, which is the reward in the world to come. And the proof is, he says, that the nation as a whole is commanded about revealed things because they can't know what's hidden. People can't know what's hidden in someone else. So there it says, If you fulfill the Torah, you'll get reward in this world. But the hidden matters are given over to Hashem, in this world and then in the next one and that's why the pastor doesn't say it. another reason why the pastor doesn't talk about the reward in the next world is because we're talking to people in this world so you talk about something that relates to them another reason why the reward of the next world i mentioned in the torah is because the purpose the idea of the reward in the next world is being connected to Akash Baruch, being close to his glory to his splendor so that's about god having a rotten desire in you so it means the ikkur, the main reward, is that God desires you. And the fact that God desires us is mentioned in the Torah. In because Talih, it talks about God will, will desire us. So then it says trusting Hashem regarding the reward of the world to come is necessary. However, don't trust that's going to be due to your own actions, because that's not true. Rather, rather, if the trust that God will do to you as kindness. You are not responsible. You're not, you're not the one who's earning it by merit. Rather, due to God's kindness. Now, here's a point that he says the following. He says, ultimately the world to come comes to, is due to Hashem's kindness. Because as I said earlier, if Hashem would do exactly what's fair, you wouldn't earn anything in the world to come. But now he goes on to a seventh point and he says, a fascinating thing. That in the world to come, besides reward, there's something beyond reward. There's kindness beyond even reward. And how do you earn that? Or how do you, how do you have betech? How do you have Right, We're talking about betach. How do you have betach? and about that? So it doesn't mean just trust Hashem will give it to you. You have to reach a level of the Hasidim that earned that. In other words, what he's saying is like this. There's something called unearned reward. But even the unearned reward, which is there as a gift, is given to those who are on the level to receive it. And that level is the anshe HaPrecious, people who are ascetic and separate from the world. The asceticism, precious, is something that he's going to dedicate the ninth gate okay, towards. That's the ninth, that's the one well, right before love of God, so it's a very advanced stage. And this idea of separating yourself from the world is a very important idea to the Chalas El-Vavis, And that's what makes a person a chassid in this context and makes it brings him to love Hashem. Loving Hashem and connecting to Him such that you're He says, like a Navi, who's not part of this world, even in this world you feel lonely and you feel like you want to be with Hashem. That's what makes a person earn this unearned kind of, that's an oxymoron there, that's what makes a person receive this gift of the extra reward in the next world. And that's why, this is a fascinating idea, that's why he says people who give up their lives for serving Hashem, they 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 deserve this kind of reward in the world to come. Because they're basically sorrowing that there's nothing important to them in this world but that. That's what it takes to to get that uh, extra reward. Chapter 5, the Chavos Levavus, goes through the differences between how a person who trusts Hashem will act. How they will act differently than someone who does not. Someone who trusts Hashem will accept God's decree in every situation. He's always calm because he knows everything comes from God. Even though he's engaged in media causes, he doesn't expect them to be the true reason why he succeeds or fails. If he receives something extra that he doesn't need, he'll use it for God, he'll use it for a mitzvah. His engagement in this world is ultimately for perfection for the next for spirituality. So therefore he'll only engage in this world in such a way that it doesn't harm his harm him religiously. Someone who trusts in God is friendly with everyone. He's not afraid of anyone harming him. And lastly, someone when trusts in God, if he doesn't succeed, he won't be upset. It won't bother him. Only thing that will bother him is whether he's doing his duties to Hashem or not. Chapter 6, he talks about what he calls the Balai Mishkanis, the people who want God to first take care of them before they feel, set them up, let's call it, before they feel they're obligated to, to serve God. And he goes through many reasons why these people are foolish. A slave can't ask for a guarantee for a deposit from his master. Additionally, these people who first want God to take care of them have endless needs. Also, how can you ask God to take care of you first? You owe him also god is very capable you don't have to take a guarantee you don't need a deposit and even if you get it even if you receive something from god you still won't be happy because how do you know the money will last and so on and so forth arguments a few more arguments which we're going to skip ahead now to the seventh chapter which in which he deals with those things that are mafsid the things that make a person not have trust in god one of them is not knowing the three Okay, it's that preceded this. Is a very important point we made. You can't start learning laws from here, you have to start from the beginning. Additionally, if a person does not know Hashem and does not know his characteristics, it's very important. You have to study Hashem, you have to study his his actions. You have to understand Hashem and his Ashkacha in order to have trust. Another thing that can stop a person from having trust in Hashem is if you think about the intermediate causes, instead of thinking about God, the cause of all causes. And I think it was a muscle, about a king who wants to punish a slave so he's going to tell a second in command who's going to tell the minister who's going to tell the policeman who's going to tell or the chief of the police is going to tell the the, the lieutenant is going to tell the actual policeman who's going to use a stick to hit the person now what's the real cause of the king and a person shouldn't think he's going to talk about he's going to focus on the stick or focus on one of these intermediate causes if you can get back to the basic cause of everything so basically, when it comes to trusting God, says the Khazavas, depending on how much a person knows Hashem, that's how much he trusts him. And now he goes through, and it's a fascinating exercise he goes through, which gives us a sense of what he means by trust. He says there are ten levels of trust. And what he's going to do is he's going to show us that everyone trusts something. Trust is a state of mind. It's where you think things are coming from. And he says when a baby is born, he trusts his mother's breasts. And then he gets a little smarter and he trusts his mother. And then he gets a little smarter and he says, well, my father's really in control. And he gets a little stronger and he's able to work and he trusts his strength. Then he realizes, well, actually, my boss is the one who calls the shots. He trusts a cre- uh, a, a, something that's created. And then he realizes, well, there are things that it's not in his control, like when it rains and he trusts about when it rains. And then even those things that he has some input in like risky business ventures he realizes that he trusts Hashem in that too. And then he gets a little deeper understanding of trusting Hashem and he realizes everything that happens comes from Hashem. And then when he gets even stronger trust he'll accept everything that happens happily. And then this is the highest level when a person knows why he's created he knows everything's about the next world. He'll reject this world and he'll keep himself, he'll keep his mind connected to the Hashem constantly. And that's the only thing that will concern him. Anything that happens in this world will not concern him. And this is the ultimate in trust. So you see, trust of an Akashabahu is not about saying that you're going to succeed. It's about a certain relationship with Akashabahu, culminating in this idea that nothing matters but for this relationship. These are the 10 levels of trust, of a Tachin. And He says interestingly that that's why there are ten, there are ten um, kinds of expression for mitachin in the Hebrew language: mivtach mishon, tikva, machzeh, tehelas, chikoy, sefer, misod, and kessel, corresponding to these seven levels. Okay, now we have done. We have completed the gate of trust, and now we're up to the next, the next one, which is the Shaar Ha Yichud how to dedicate all a person's actions to God. Why does this follow from trust? Because if you dedicate yourself completely to God, that purifies, purifies the conscience, and makes a person not, not want to flatter people. In other words, the way of dedicating yourself to God. What is it? So he's going to do six things. Chapter 1 is going to be about what does it mean for your actions to be purely for God. Second chapter is how. Third are what actions is that the case Four is What stops it. Five is how to get rid of those things that stop it. And sixth is the things that occur to you and how to avoid them. So what does it mean? Chapter 1, what does it mean for your actions to be pure? It means that, that your intention revealed and internal when you, in the actions of serving God are to do his will and nothing more. So you see how this follows from trust. Chapter 2 how what does it what causes a person to have for his actions to be pure for God? There are ten things necessary Know that God is one the first chapter knowing what God the first time. knowing what God does to us that's the second one accepting worship him that's the third one. The fourth thing is to have trust in him over anything else so you see how the introductions to this fifth gate, which is purity of action purity purity of action making it dedicated to God, is predicated on knowing the first four and then now up to the fifth thing you need to know know that nothing but for god can harm you sixth is that it shouldn't matter to you whether people praise you or or not it shouldn't care what people think about you seventh don't try to be don't try to get ahead among people eighth is to empty your mind from this world when you're thinking about the next world so to be completely empty of thoughts of this world and ninth is to fear god and tenth is that Anything that your evil inclination brings to your mind, you should think about intelligently. Chapter 3. What actions require purity of, of, of activity? It says all the revealed actions. Because those you might do for the wrong reason. You might do them because you might care what people think. But when it comes to duties of the heart, those are not known to anyone but for God. So when it comes to duties of the heart, there's no problem of are they pure, are they not pure. Chapter 4. What makes a person not to have his actions be pure? It's either because he doesn't know Hashem and his goodness, or you don't know the mitzvahs. And then there's the Yetzihar, which gives you all sorts of ideas and, and distances you from the world to come, from the world of spirituality, and makes you consider things in this world. If you don't know Hashem, you don't understand what Hashem is, then you must be you're doing things for people because you don't understand what Hashem is. And then just like a person who worships idols, does that because he doesn't know what Hashem is. So too, a person doesn't know what Hashem is, and therefore he does things for people. And in fact, Chalas says that a person who does idol worship, there are four ways that he is superior to someone who's faking and, and worshiping Hashem without knowing what Hashem is and really thinking about people. Because an idol worshiper doesn't have a navi telling him why what he's doing is wrong. But if you're following the Torah, which tells you not to serve other people with Hashem or not to do things for other people, then you then you're being warned an idol worshiper is not worshiping someone who rebels against hashem but someone who worships people meaning he does things for people's for people to praise him <clears throat> is worshiping people, th- things who actually rebel against hashem someone who worships idols only worships one thing while someone who cares about other people has an infinite things that he worships that he reveres an idol worshiper doesn't hide from people so everyone knows he's an idol worshiper but a person who thinks about other people has a hidden kfirah Hidden apostasy against Hashem, and he's going to harm people by his example. If a person doesn't know the Torah, doesn't know how to serve Hashem, you can't do pure worship because you don't really understand what you're doing. And then the third thing, when it comes to what the Yitzhah makes a person think, there are two things. The Yitzhah could give her thoughts into a person's mind and make him doubt things that are true, and the Yitzhah could give a person all sorts of arguments uh, against good action and tell them why you should be doing something different. Now, this brings us to the fifth chapter, which is a fascinating chapter in this shahar. And if you ever think about the battle with the Yetzirah, in other words, you know, the thoughts that come to your mind that dissuade you from doing the good, it's probably somewhere, somewhere in this chapter, because here the Yetzirah goes through all the various arguments that the Yetzirah puts to a person's mind and he also supplies you with some tools to answer Yetzirah. I'm not going to go into all of them, certainly not. It's a very long chapter. I'll give you a couple of examples, but I recommend that if you ever are facing this melchemes ha this battle with Yetzirah, this might be a good place to look, to see what the Chayot says about it. So, if you're looking for the address, we're in the Shar Yichar HaMaisa, in the gate of the where he talks about dedicating your action, purifying your action. And it's the fifth chapter. Which the host of all this begins saying I'm going to give you some examples which will indicate to those things which I don't talk about lekach. you could hear this chapter, and that will you will learn from here and have more teaching and apply it to other cases, and your greatest enemy he says is the so really he personifies the Yitzhar here and he talks about him as an enemy that never stops trying to bring you down, no matter how much you win, he comes back for war, keeps fighting. The first thing that the Yetzirah tells you, he says, starts arguing with you that, you know what, you're just a body, you're not a soul. How do you fight that? How do you fight that argument? So he says, follow your intellect and look at the proofs that the Rishonim mentioned and the tradition of Nabi. By that, of course, he means Sadi Goyin and others, perhaps, as he mentioned in the introduction. <clears throat> who deal with the idea that the soul is immortal. So it's very important, because your Itza is going to come and tell you, ah, you know, you're just a body. You're not really a soul. So you got to think about it. How do I know I'm a soul? What are the proofs for that? That'll tell you, who says God created this world from nothing? Maybe the world existed, existed, so you have to look into those proofs for that too. And he notes, the Chavon notes over here, that the whole reason why Shabbos is so strict is because the Torah keeps on telling us about Shabbos, or pizza and it was time, it's very strict, is because that teaches that the world was created from nothing. And then he'll argue that God is not one, well, go learn the first shrine he says. Then he'll tell you, well, you don't have to serve Hashem, why do you have to serve Hashem? Go learn the, go learn the second and third shrine. what Hashem does, does and why we owe him. And then he'll tell you, why do you believe in the vua, learn the third shrine? so basically, we're reverse engineering here. We're saying all the things that the Etzahar comes up and he's giving you the answers. He's telling you where to look sometimes. Then I'll tell you why do you trust Tershaba Peh. So he goes into why you have to trust that. Is there really a word in the next world? Look into that. How come the Torah doesn't say it? The, part, the question we raised earlier. You'll find it in the Neviim. Now the next thing Yitzhar will do. Okay, so the Etzahar is done with his theological arguments. And now he's going to try to make you get involved in this world. Get sunk into tithing, to pleasure. And he tells you how to deal with that. Yet Sahara is going to try to bring you proofs. He'll bring you proofs from Psukkim. And of course, this is all internal. This is what happens to a person's mind. There's all the doubts that happen to a person. But it's really interesting to look at it this way, as if you have this enemy that you're fighting with. <clears throat> and again, you can use the Chaybis of and here, is what he talks about at length, you can use it in your battle with the Yet He might tell you, try to receive people's praise. He might tell you when he sees you engaged in learning or prayer, he'll start bringing ideas of this world to your mind. And that's a beautiful description. There, something more familiar with that. As soon as you want to dedicate, think about something important. the next, well, that's when you start thinking about your business and all the things you have to take care of. Then I'll tell you, you know what? I'll go the other way, he'll say, oh, you have to avoid people completely and hide all your good actions so nobody praises you. And you you have to answer and say, well, some actions involve the public and those I shouldn't hide. Then I'll tell you, you know what? You are such a great person, you deserve the world to come. And I'll try to make you serve a God in order to to receive reward. Or I'll tell you, why don't you push push off worship of God till your end of your life? You don't have to spend your whole life in that. I'll tell them, I don't know when I'm going to die. I'll tell you, the greatest person ever. That you're so wonderful in your worship of God. And you have to respond and say, why other people are better than you. If, if you succeed in, in studying Chachmah, he'll tell you you've already succeeded, you don't have to do more. Or he'll make you jealous of people who have succeeded more than you. These are some of the things, not even all, that the Chlebusaphat raised in this chapter and gives much lengthier arguments than I've just presented here in very short. And then the sixth and final chapter <coughs> of this Shadd talks about the purity of action. He says, everything is rooted in thought. the Numishman of Salibah. The main thing is to watch your thoughts. A thought that comes to mind, purify it and tested. Let's see if it's correct. Because those are where those are ultimately what influence you. This, as he says, is very he ends by saying he only mentioned the ma'at meharbe. He has to mention a lot. Only a little a bit, some examples. So this is the end of the fifth shah. This brings us to the sixth shah, which is about Kineo, kineo means humility, being humble in front of God. Now, why does this follow having pure action? Because the 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 the, the problem, the most gravest difficulty in having pure action, is haughtiness. Humility is very important for purity of action, so that follows for purity of action and. He says it's in fact humility to God from God is the main service being a slave to God, because that's declaring God as the master and you as the slave. Additionally, humility is very important because that way you don't lord it over people, There are 10 things he's going to talk about this gate. What is this humility? What are its parts? How is it achieved? <clears throat> when should it be used? How to how to uh, how to uh, get to this characteristic? How to act when to do it when not whether humility follows good characteristics or good characteristics follow humility can a person have in his mind humility and haughtiness, and what the purpose is in this world okay chapter one what is humility it's a lowliness of the soul recognizing how it's not <clears throat> doesn't have great worth it's part of the soul it's characteristic of the soul well, that when a person has this characteristic it will eventually be seen on his limbs how he talks how he acts Chapter two, humility is comprised of three parts. The first part, he says, includes humans and even animals, which is that when something happens to a person or an animal, something harmful and a person doesn't know how to save himself or the animal, the person gets lowly, but that's not really called humility. That's just a weakness of the soul. second kind of humility is when a person is subject to people, or jailed, or needs with people, like a person working for someone, or a student. So this kind of humility is natural and necessary, <clears throat> but it's not necessarily a great level, because it's not always the case, and it's not applied to all people. The third one is humility to God, and that includes all people at all times. This person is humble <coughs> is what's called anav. He gives all the terms used in the Tanakh for this person. Of course, the prevalence of all these terms in Tanakh shows us how it's a very important fundamental media related to God. So he's going to be talking about this third level of humility. And here he says, he ends this second chapter here by saying, one who achieves this humility. Is close to being before God and being beloved by God. As the Pasuk says, If a person's on this level, then God wants him, desires him. Chapter 3. If a person is hordy, there are ten things that are going to make him humble. If he gets weak or sick, if he gets if he, if, if he gets poor, if someone else does good to him, if he owes a debt and he can't pay it, if he's jailed, if he's enslaved, if he suffers, when he recognizes how much Hashem has done good to him and how he hasn't repaid him, if he suffers from Hashem through Yisruin, and when he feels that death is approaching. Those are four things that can humble a holy person. Chapter 4. What do you use it for? Where do you use this Midah of Humility? So he says there are seven places where it's used. Dealing with people and doing kind to them. when you meet people that know Hashem and good people respect them if people praise you you should be humble and recognize that you've done sins and God has forgiven you for them if people talk about the evil that you've done you should thank Hashem say that's a kapara atones for me if Hashem does good to you you should be humble because the more Hashem does good to you recognize how much you owe Hashem And not only that, sometimes receiving God's goodness can end up being a problem for you. It could be a test. It could cause you to sin. <clears throat> if you learn the Torah and you see the promises and the threats and you know that you're not living up to it, that should make you humble. And the seventh is, if you're appointed to do something of serving of Hashem, tefillah, tzedakah or a mitzvah, <clears throat> don't do it and be proud rather be humble in front of Hashem in your revealed sense and in your inside and don't value yourself relative to some, relative to the degree that you have to serve Hashem you should recognize that you're not valued. chapter five how does a person reach humility so it's by thinking about seven things first of all thinking about where you come from from semen and blood and you're born as a baby and weak secondly think about all the difficulties that will happen to you in this world hunger, thirst, illness, cold, heat. Thirdly, think about eventually you're going to die and be in the grave. Fourthly, think about all the kindness that God has done to you and how much you owe him and how much you haven't done what you have to do. That will make you humble. Fifthly, when you think about the greatness of Akash Baruch Hu, sees everything, and you think about this, he says, very interesting uh, exercise here we have some things about the early generations of Tanoim let's say Yunus Ben Azil when he talked in Teirah when he was there but Teirah, that birds would fly over and be burnt the Neviim were greater than them undoubtedly the Neviim were greater than Yunus and Azil, and the Neviim who would meet a Malach would be very frightened as we have in the Torah. the Malach and the angels bow before Hashem so this should give you a sense of the greatness of Hashem. And even just looking at Hashem's actions, the sun and the moon, and the stars and the spheres and the earth, gives a sense of Hashem's greatness. And think about yourself in relation to all of humanity and all of humanity to the earth and all of the earth to the sphere of the moon and the sphere of the moon to the greatest sphere, the outer sphere, and all of these relative to God. And you realize that we're worth nothing. And you'll be humble. Sixthly, if you read the book of Hashem, the Torah, and you recognize the great punishment for those who are hori, you will make yourself humble. Seventh, when you see how the great can fall in this world and the rich can become poor, powerful nations can be destroyed, that will make you humble. If you always keep these seven, one of these seven things in your mind, I'm sorry, if you always keep all of these seven things in your mind, you will be honor of you will be humble and it will be natural to you chapter six how does a humble person have to act number one he has to know God's kindness to him number two he has to know the obligations of a tyrant has to study it number three he has to be patient when people say things that make them that are that unacceptable to him say negative things about him he has to accept that number four does kindness to people and does good to people he thinks kindly about people number five he's humble when it comes to this world number six when it comes to matters of the next world he's very ambitious He's not satisfied satisfied with whatever he has number seven when it comes to relationships to people, he has to not show himself to be better than other people by serving Hashem. And he gives an example, Aaron was told to move the ashes, the Kain is told to move the ashes. Why? Daily, in order to inculcate in himself humility, that serving Hashem is not a matter of pride among people. It's a matter of pride internally it's not something that you should hold yourself over people number eight whatever food you get accept that because don't consider yourself to be to be haughty and to be great that you need fancy food number seven those who are against hashem you have to take revenge for them and just because you're when it comes to people you're forgiving you shouldn't be forgiving too when it comes to hashem and number ten is that you should so quietly and not laugh a lot and don't swear by Hashem's name and don't lie. So basically be a person of subdued nature. Chapter 7 What are the signs that someone has achieved? Humility. A person gets angry and still forgives someone? That's a sign of humility. Something bad happens to a person, instead of getting upset, he hopes, accepts the decree of God that indicates that he's humble. By you doing aha right, I don't know That indicates humility. The person has a reputation, and people praise him. And that's unimportant to him. Inside he thinks it's not important, that's a sign of humility. On the other hand, if people say negative things about him, he accepts that and realizes that he deserves worse. Here's where Chabasababa says something about Lash and Hari. He says that if a person says something negative about a person, about someone else, then he gets punished for his sins. And he says, the Tzaddik said that many people are going to come to the day of judgment and they'll find in their books of merits, merits that they haven't done. And they'll say, I didn't do this. And they say, Well, no, those who said, spoke negatively about you did these good things and you received the reward for them. And the one who said Lashanar is going to get up there to judgment and these merits are going to be missing from his books and say, Yeah, because when he spoke negatively about someone, they were transferred to him. Another sign of humility is if a person has great success, great wisdom, great wealth, or power, and still remains humble, and still does kindest to people. That's a sign of humility. Chapter eight: Does humility follow from good characteristics, or the reverse? So he says something very interesting. He says the first the basic accepting God's worship is to consider him the master and to consider yourself the slave. God's only the master if you're the slave. In order to be a slave you have to be humble and give gaiva all his power all to God. Gaiva holiness is God's clothing. If you take the clothing for yourself like arguing against God. Therefore, then, everything is based on considering God the Master and being humble. It follows, then, that all good actions, all good characteristics and mitzvahs follow humility and not the reverse. And for that reason, the beginning of repentance, which is the next gate, which we're not going to do today, is humility. Chapter 9. Can a person have holiness and humility it Says it depends. depends two types of holiness there's a physical holiness about your body and there's holiness about spirituality any holiness that comes from the physical world automatically negates the possibility of humility each one they're mutually exclusive because if you understood your status in this world you wouldn't be able to be holy about it. but holiness when it comes to Religious and spiritual matters it depends. one of them is good and one of them is bad. The negative one, if a person thinks he's achieved a lot through wisdom or his actions and he's deserving of praise, and that he puts down other people, and that's called Miscave, someone who, who, who just considers himself honorable relative to other people by putting them down. But the fine kind of holiness. Maybe the "holding" is the wrong word here, but the fine kind of being proud is if a person is 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 happy about his wisdom, his righteousness, while thanking Hashem who's given you the ability to do this good and the desire to do it, and that makes you want to do more, and be more connected to spirituality, and kind to people. That and thankful to Hashem, that is not a contradiction to another. This is by Yigba Liboy, the Da'chi Hashem. And in fact, this goes along with humility, ekevan of another year, session. Chapter 10, what are the purpose of humility? There are three in this world, three in the next world, When matters of the next world. The person who's humble will accept his income and won't look for more. Whatever he has will be enough. If he suffers, bad things happen to him, he will accept them, won't be impatient. A humble person is beloved to people. Those are the three things in this world. When it comes to the next world, humble person, it's easy for a humble person to become wise because he accepts the wise people he respects them. A humble person is quick to do the actions of listening to God doesn't consider himself, doesn't consider himself below him. And sixth, lastly, the actions of a humble person are acceptable in front of Hashem, while the sins are quickly forgiven. And again, that's leading us into the next char, which is about repentance. So this is why humility is so important, and it's something you should always act with, and you should ask Hashem to help you be humble, like we say at the end of Shem essay. You have to ask Hashem to grant you this great Midah. And that will bring you to happiness in this world and the next.